I'm Naira Antoon, Director of the Transnational Trends in Citizenship Project. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the podcast from Century International. Today, I'm speaking with Jacob Mundy. This podcast is part of the Transnational Trends in Citizenship Project, where we brought together topic experts, activists, and scholars from the Middle East, Europe, and North America to see what we could learn when we break down area-based silos. Today's conversation comes out of the Militias Working Group. Uh, Jacob Mundy is an associate professor in peace and conflict studies at Colgate University. So today we'll be uh, speaking about what you've called the militiafication of thinking around uh, armed violence. And uh, we have a commentary that you've written covering some similar ground. Um, so perhaps we can begin by just saying what, what you mean by that. Well, as we worked through the, the project that you just described, I was wondering or thinking about um, uh, usually what happens in, in terms of my thought is I, I'm often very skeptical about claims to that there's something new going on in the world um, and that there's always a kind of repeated assertion that features of contemporary armed conflict, organized violence, that, that you know, they're, they're unparalleled or unprecedented in, in human history. And some of my past research had looked at how claims of newness of war are almost, you know, every, every period of warfare, you know, World War II, Vietnam, you name it, has had these claims that, you know, this is, this is so different than what we've ever seen before. And it seemed to me that a lot of armed conflicts lately, though, particularly those in the Middle East, the one I focus on the most, perhaps Libya, that armed actors had been uh, labeled militias. Um, and that um, had raised suspicions in my um, thinking about well, what is driving this this new framing? Why is why is militia now the kind of go to word in terms of thinking about armed conflict? Is it actually the case that there are more para state armed forces than ever before? And yet, at the same time, we often describe anti state forces and militias. So. Um, partially what I was thinking about in the piece was what does the actual data say? Um, but then also thinking behind the data in terms of where, what could possibly be motivating, uh, this, this sort of new framing or thinking about contemporary armed conflict. So just in, in terms of like, um, a timescale, like when would you say that this framework kind of emerged? I think it uh, is probably uh, an outgrowth of the 1990s and the international community grappling with armed conflict in a new way outside of the paradigm of the Cold War, which had provided so many you know, discursive resources and framings that understandings of armed conflict in the Cold War are often ready-made and, and that uh, obfuscated the actual dynamics of what was going on in the on the ground in the 1990s with the collapse of the cold war framework to think through armed conflict or you know to, to be told what to think about armed conflict new paradigms had to had to emerge and i think there was a grappling for a kind of understanding if you look at i think the yugoslav wars where you see a lot of claims to uh, militia status among actors but more importantly among framing from outside observers who aren't quite sure what uh, to designate these various groups because they don't they don't seem to look like insurgents in the way that the Cold War told us to think about 
insurgents and they don't look like terrorists in the way that other terrorist groups had framed that kind of activity. So if the Cold War, as you say, with the end of the Cold War, we lost sort of prevailing frameworks that we were used to using or the commentators were used to using. Um, so new paradigms had to be found. But is it not the case that not only the frameworks changed, but did armed violence itself not also change with the kind of shifting relations that came with the end of the Cold War? There, on that question, yeah, I think there's some um, divided evidence in terms of how the end of the Cold War might have impacted armed conflicts. It's not the case, at least from the data that exists, and we can talk about how data is formulated. Um, That's also a huge part of what went into my book about Algeria. But the um, the late Cold War from, let's say, the 1970s through the mid-1990s saw a steady accumulation of so-called civil wars or internal conflicts in the international system. And there's um, maybe a slight uptick uh, at the end of the Cold War, but the, the accumulation of conflicts is a trend that preceded the collapse of the Soviet Union by two decades. The... Um, I think the the debate mainly would have to center around what what is the collapse of um, the easy availability of patrons? How did that change armed conflict? And I think there there there's some interesting research has been done that you know the United States uh, was no longer looking to arm anti-communist forces and the Soviet Union wasn't able or Russia wasn't able to to you know do do likewise um, and so there was definitely going to be a change perhaps at the level of political economy and international politics of armed conflict because there there wasn't um, you know ready-made funding sources for armed groups to go um, seek patronage in that way. Um, And there's some research to suggest that this led to uh, civil wars or internal conflicts that were much, uh, um, let's say, less technologically sophisticated than the ones you might have seen during the Cold War, that, you you know, nobody nobody was giving anyone Stinger missiles anymore. You know, no one one was getting helicopters or tanks or or things like that. Um, And this might have also increased movement towards uh, black market as a, a way to sort of supplement the, the reproduction of armed conflict through new transnational political economies. Um, so in that sense, I think there, uh, there was some differences, right? But then that also raises the question about new war theory, which I talked about in the piece. Yeah, uh, we'll turn to that in a moment. I think just to say, I mean, it sounds like because the argument, the evidence that you've pointed to that would suggest there's some change in the nature of armed conflict with the end of the Cold War um, almost seems commonsensical, right? So that with the end of the collapse of the this, this um, you know power stru- global power structure, that inevitably conflict would change, and so it's just natural that we would seek new paradigms and and there's nothing problem you know it's quite a smooth it just seems commonsensical but you're troubling that a little bit and you've alluded to the fact that perhaps the frameworks that were in use weren't really fit for purpose anyway and weren't picking up on actual key features of of armed violence right 
Yeah, I mean, there, there are two questions there for me. One is, um, what is the um, utility or pragmatic value of, of any given framework? Um, you know, some someone suggests that, well, it's, you know, whatever is the most accurate description of reality, but I'm not, I'm too skeptical. <laughs> I'm too much of a skeptic to, to, to buy into that. The other one is to, is to question why certain frameworks become dominant or become pervasive in, and irrespective of whether or not they capture um, fundamental aspects, you know. And again, before we talk about New War Theory, right, there, there are aspects that I think New War Theory gets right and there are aspects that are, that are questionable. Um, and so to me, it's, it's more that, that kind of second question of thinking about what is the relationship between um, the um, a widespread adoption of a certain framework of thinking about conflict What's, what does that say about um, not only the conditions that uh, favor its adoption, but also um, the conditions that uh, gave rise to it in the first place, right? So to kind of not, not to disentangle um, how frameworks um, and, you know, framework versus reality, but to say that they're actually uh, mutually affecting each other. Right. So it, um, in thinking about conflict in a certain way, it actually affects the world. It's not just a reflection of the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, this this project has been really um, interesting in that way, because by bringing together um, scholars, activists and so on, working across region and actively trying to break down area based silos, um, it it implicitly, I think, brings up questions that you're that you're raising here of sort of knowledge production, right? Like, so already we're saying why why is knowledge organized in this way? And we go into this politics of of knowledge production. And I know you've written also about uh, the kind of construction of the Middle East as as a region. Um, but it's quite unusual fare for for a think tank, really, right? Um, <laughs> this sort of all this chat about the the politics of knowledge, but. But because your argument here that actually this isn't just um, sort of theoretical abstract theory that we can just, you know, you're an academic that scholars can chat about amongst themselves, but actually that it has real effects on the world. And I suppose certain frameworks also make certain policies possible. I mean, maybe you can say more about like how this might link to policy or how we think about policy. Yeah, well, I mean, the most obvious case would be terrorism, that um, you if you think about terrorism as um, sort of a species of organized violence, um, you know, at, at one level, okay, maybe it uh, has pragmatic value in terms of explaining the world in a certain way, but we also have to think about terrorism as a practice, particularly counterterrorism. Um, you know, that, you know, we can, we can talk about, you know, definitions of terrorism and, the, you know, one person's freedom fighters, another person's terrorist, you know. But for people who are, you know, targeted in a drone strike or people who are, you know, in jail because, you know, their, you know, their bodega accidentally transferred money from Somalia that might have been tied to Al-Shabaab, you know, that's, you know, where the rubber meets the road and a framework can be can be quite powerful. Um, to use a less sensational or spectacular example, um, there was a, 
out of the the conflicts of the 1990s, there was a lot of um, research on what were the what were the drivers of all these internal conflicts, right? And the first question, of course, we have to ask is what, why are they being internal, you know, viewed as internal or endogenized in that sense? But nonetheless, the the World Bank, for example, became very interested in in understanding. Um, you know, I mean, you think about Somalia, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Yugoslavia, right? There was a the, this was a development challenge for the the World Bank, you know, institution that had you know reformed itself as a development agency, and so uh, a lot of this research, which was conducted by um, economists, um, you know, particularly at Oxford University, uh, to understand what were the what were the you know so called correlates of civil war. And the, um, their findings uh, often dismissed identity uh, across the board as, as a driver of conflict uh, and pointed to what they what eventually became a kind of framing as, as um, greed versus grievance. And that uh, it was actually greed was the, was the finding because they could correlate, for example, uh, lootable resources with, with certain civil wars, right? So... Um, this framework of understanding, right, the, the imposition of this greed versus grievance, and that grievance was um, viewed as not not a real reason for civil war because they couldn't find any correlations between identity, <laughs> identity and and conflict, as if it it happens that neatly, you know that. Uh, the more diverse. So, what what about grievance as uh, ideology or other motivations? Well, no, factors, yeah, or was it in this theory reduced to? Identity? Well, no, exactly right. So the. Um, you know, would look at, you know, is there a correlation between the number of different identity groups and conflict? You know, as if that would, if that suffices as an indicator of how identity functions in a conflict. And they would say, okay, so we can, we can uh, suggest that that has no effect or no bearing upon the outbreak of civil war. So we're going to look at something else. And, the, and then they focused upon lootable resources. And therefore, then you get, you get uh, basically blood diamond based policies. Um, and, Someone I worked with on an edited volume pointed out pretty masterfully, like in the case of Sierra Leone, what did all of these new laws and restrictions on diamonds do in terms of policy, right, uh, which were based upon this new economic thinking about civil war? Um, uh, one, they increased uh, the very state power that rebel groups were rebelling against by saying that there, there are legitimate forms of diamond exploitation and there are legitimate ones. So... If a diamond comes from a alluvial mine that is, you know, exploited by, you know, licensed authorities, you know, uh, businesses, things like that, and you, you know, forget what the standards of living are for the workers, but that's an okay diamond. But if it's exploited on the, you know, by the black market or by, you know, artisanal unsanctioned miners, that's a, that's a bad diamond or something. Uh, and so... Uh, not only can we see like a, a paradigm begin to like affect policy, but then it begins to create a new reality, a new world, right? Uh, and that and that it's not able to account for its own actions in the world because it doesn't view uh, causation in this kind of entangled, dialectically unfolding kind of way. Actually, the Sierra Leone example is a, is a really good example to explain what we mean, um, indeed, about like how. These frameworks create create the world. Okay, we'll be right back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, director of Century International. We're the heirs to more than 100 years of international policy research at the Century Foundation. Today, 
We focus on the human consequences of policy crises in the Middle East and North Africa, and we try to address our findings to a wide international audience. We're especially concerned with decision makers, whether in MENA region capitals or in the West and Washington, whose decisions can greatly change the trajectory of policies in the Middle East. Please visit us at tcf.org to read our reports and listen to our podcasts. Welcome back to Order from Ashes, the Century International Podcast. I'm Naira Antoun, and I'm speaking with Jacob Mundy about transnational trends in citizenship and militias uh, specifically. So, Jacob, we were speaking about um, this sort of focus on militias in, um, in disproportionate, perhaps, focus on uh, militias in um, intellectual and policy uh, discussions. And you suggested that um, in the commentary that you wrote for us, that one of the uh, reasons for this might be this prevalence of, um, sorry, new war theory, um, which actually you were kind of speaking about just at, at the end there with this greed grievance. That's also new war theory, right? Essentially, or similar, right? Yeah, maybe you can explain to us. Yeah, I mean, the greed grievance was um, more of a debate conducted within economics and political science and international relations, particularly among quantitatively oriented methodologies. Um, eventually that, that paradigm was exhausted and people had to return to the fact that identity actually does matter <laughs> in armed conflict. You know, almost, almost every, um, you know, major actor in most civil wars has been organized along ethnic lines, right? So, so to dismiss identity is um, quite absurd in that respect. New War Theory was... Um, uh, particularly advocated by Mary Caldor and came out of uh, her observations of conflicts in, in the 1990s, particularly Yugoslavia, where you had the disintegration of a state, um, the rise of so-called militias, and their connections to uh, transnational flows of you know goods, human services, things of that sort. Um, so New War thinking was an effort to place the kinds of conflicts of the night post-Cold War period in the context of globalization, but the kind of darker side of globalization and the um, sort of Carolyn Nordstrom shadows of war kind of kind of approach. Um, there was a, a strong pushback uh, against new war thinking, but the uh, getting back to, to my point, right, the new war thinking wasn't able to, to think about why why it existed, why why was uh, what was driving new war thinking itself? You know, not just not just the phenomenon, but the insistence that um, the you know wars were qualitatively and quantitatively different than they had been before. What what was new war thinking emblematic of in terms of geo the geopolitical moment of let's say nineteen ninety eight to nine eleven? So what was it emblematic of? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. One one is obviously a uh, being a part of the discourse of globalization, a certain a certain framing of what was happening in the world uh, post Cold War with international trade, the idea of um, you know that there's there's a fundamental tension dividing the world between multicultural cosmopolitanism and ethno nationalist separatism, the the insistence that 
wars of this period were, in effect, anti-political uh, in the sense that they no longer uh, created or made states in the classical European model of you know, the, the post-medieval period, as if you know, as if you know, everything has to be held up to a European framework in terms of what what war is supposed to do. Um, and so that, that, that inability of frameworks to interrogate themselves is the thing that I was kind of getting at and trying to get at with, with thinking about militias. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was a little surprised to see this um, mention of new war theory in your, in your piece because I think the reason I, I sort of put it together with the greed uh, versus grievance debate is because I studied this in my undergrad and I remember writing an essay at undergrad being like, oh yeah, it's not true that uh, wars are new um, and not to show my age, but that was like 20 years ago. So I was a little surprised, you know, we were, we were taught kind of the flaws of the theory really. And I, I yeah. Um, and so I'm a little surprised that 20 years on, two decades on, it's still so um, prevalent in, in sort of mainstream policy thinking, really. Well, I would, I would probably suggest that, you know, you could think about new war theory as capital <laughs> new war theory, that specific to, to Mary Caldor's thinking and people who've followed her. Um, but also a kind of sense, uh, lowercase new war thinking. Um, so I think I, I cited uh, sort of a documentary produced around 2010 by a public broadcasting service in the U.S., which was framed entirely around this idea that, that conflicts are fundamentally different, that they're, they're, more, they're more civilian targeted than ever before. You know, they're, they're based upon basically terroristic violence. That there, there's, no, there's no sense in which the regular warfare exists in any sense anymore. And those, those kinds of claims, right? And viewing armed actors as militias seems to go part and parcel with that kind of worldview that uh, what's sometimes called degenerate warfare, you know, that warfare today is again, wars of state unmaking, that they, their politics is not something that coincides with the, the liberal project of consolidating an international system of democratic nation states, things like that. Yeah, so I, I guess this new war thinking sort of small lowercase has kind of perhaps become so prevalent that it's kind of entered commonsensical thinking, right? That there's a shift in the nature of armed violence at the end of the Cold War seems yeah. almost obvious. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the the sort of lowercase um, new war thinking, I guess. So, yeah, in your piece, you also suggested um, that the, the prevalence of this kind of thinking is also to do specifically with the shifting um, or a certain anxiety um, around shifting uh, North Atlantic powers and their shifting role in the in the global system. Um, can you perhaps say a little more about that? Yeah, well, the, the common framework that conflicts today are, you know, anti, anti-modern or, you know, anti-state projects, or they're based upon ethnic identities or identities that have nothing to do with a, you know, um, uh, a polity in the sense that we came to understand after World War II or something of that sort, that these these conflicts are these sort of chaotic, you know, forces that are tearing away at the, the international system seems to me strongly correlated 
with a world in which the North Atlantic powers are no longer in a position to really dictate as clearly as they used to be, right? Dictate the kind of terms of the international system. So whereas, um, you know, in the Cold War, we would think broadly about, uh, you know, violence of this sort as being political violence, right? That, that framing in some ways has gone away because politics in the classical sense no longer seems to hold. So uh, in a roundabout way, what, what seems to me is that the militiafication, if we want to call it that, of thinking about armed conflict, this idea that, that conflicts are more um, chaotic, they're more, um, they're, you know, sort of like, you know, disaggregated, you know, violence-filled, you know, um, sort of things that are eating away at the international system. It's like, well, well what is the, the cart and the horse in this relationship, first of all? You know, what, what, is, what is truly eating away at the international system, right? Is it conflicts like Libya and Syria, right? Or, or conflicts like Libya and Syria more an effect of other things that are going on? You know, so, you know, is it is it the exhaustion of North Atlantic capitalism and how that is manifesting in terms of these conflicts? Right. So instead of, um, you know, viewing uh, these conflicts as um, sort of the barbarians at the gate. Right. Um, these conflicts are more kind of the, you know, the chickens coming home to roost in a certain way of a, a kind of a failed paradigm, you know, whether you think about it in terms of international relations as, you know, oh, I call it global Jim Crow, like a separate but equal system that's erected after World War II, where there's no, there's no real uh, conversation about economic justice in terms of colonization, right? Or uh, the ability of capitalism really to, to lift all boats and that sort of thing. So uh, blaming armed conflicts, blaming China, you know, blaming Russia, right? These sort of, you know, diversionary tactics instead of thinking about what, what is actually um, going on in terms of the West um, and the North Atlantic powers and their failure to, to secure the world that, that they promised, right? Um, and so calling an armed actor a militia for me is... is significant because it, it is a kind of depoliticization or an anti-political kind of framing, right, that reinforces an understanding of armed conflicts um, outside of um, this traditional political frameworks uh, that we've come to see. So it's, it, can be, it can be delegitimating in some ways, right? But more importantly, it feeds a kind of worldview of a world in chaos, right? And that 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 chaos has, you know, supposedly nothing to do with <laughs> the failure of uh, the North Atlantic liberal order. Wow, there's so much to to ponder there. Um, thank you for for joining us today. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century International podcast. I'm Naira Antun, and I've been speaking with Jacob Mundy as part of our Transnational Trends in Citizenship project, which brings together experts from across different regions. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. 
Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.